We're going to start today with Hugh Massey, CEO of DNA Behavior International from Australia. Uh, Hugh, welcome. It's great to have you here. Hugh, please unmute your line so we can hear you. Can you hear me now? Are you there? Yes, we can hear you now. Perfect. So welcome, I'm delighted to, uh, to be here. Great. Well, let's start by having you tell us what you do. So what we do at DNA Behaviour International is we are a people insights business and we are a technology business that helps businesses and financial advisors know, engage and grow all of their employees and particularly their clients. And the, you know, the business started out as Financial DNA, which is one of our uh, big platforms still. It's really the biggest platform that we have in our business. And, you know, what we do there is, and, and, and what's important about it is that we've been helping financial advisors all over the world not only help their clients determine their goals, but navigate their emotions in the process of achieving their uh, uh, their goals and the, you know the human emotions are the big difference between success and failure not only in wealth creation but in, a, in any area of life regardless of who you are whether you've got one dollar to your name or whether you've got a billion dollars. Can you give us an example of what kind of heuristics you can you know pick up and then what is the actionable insight that you give to an advisor who's advising a financial client? Well, the classic one and the, and the most basic one in a way, although none of this is basic, but, but the one that most people know about is uh, risk, people's risk tolerance or the propensity to take risks would be, would, be the, would be the one that most people know about because that's a behaviour and how much risk can you, can you tolerate. But when you, you know, and this is really why I got into designing the financial DNA model, which is getting to the person's whole financial personality. So we're looking at every dimension mm -hmm. of how a person makes financial decisions. And risk, you know, their risk tolerance is really only one aspect of that and, and, and in, in itself is multidimensional. But what we're looking at in terms of, you, if you bring up the heuristics is, for example, uh, people's spending patterns. And, and one of the biggest reasons that people don't achieve their goals is that they're spenders. And actually the spending type people are more, much more emotional and that actually causes more risk in terms of uh, their portfolios and in, and, and in their investments because if you spend a lot of money, then you have to make a lot of money to cover that up in terms of uh, maintaining your lifestyle or building your business. But if you broaden that out, uh, you know, the other types of heuristics might be, for example, some people follow the herd. They do what everybody else is doing. And that's why yeah. markets rise and fall. Uh, there are others that sort of follow a practice of what we call mental accounting. So therefore they segment their, their finances off in, in a whole lot of uh, buckets and then they get landlocked to those buckets. Oh gee, I must have this amount of money for my kid's education or saving up for my daughter's wedding uh, or, or to buy a second house. And uh, it gets very inflexible in terms of their decision making. Is it wrong? No. Uh, not necessarily, but it can get inflexible. And that's just a mental pattern that people uh, have and they get landlocked. Uh, a lot of entrepreneurs, and I know we've got entrepreneurs listening on the call today, one that uh, um, 
you know, that they get stuck with is the fact that they take a consolidated view of their portfolio. So they're looking at the overall result. Okay, I made 11% last year, but when you analyze it out of 10 deals or 10 investments, one or two were pretty good, uh, and three or four average, and then there are five or six at the bottom there that are very poor or complete loss makers. And it's easy to justify the result and say, okay, well, I've made money and it's all right, but at the end of the day, why did you make, you know, what I would be bringing up to you is, and I was doing this with uh, a group of uh, multimillionaires uh, just earlier this week, why were you making those bad decisions that led you to losing five times? Are you okay. just throwing money up against the wall and hoping, or are you following a proper due diligence process? And, okay. you know, it's easy to rationalise losses that way, particularly if you're an entrepreneur, and you'll do the same in your businesses as well, you know, that you'll wipe away a whole lot of bad decisions that were made because you're on a winner in one area. And, 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 I, and I think that's sort of like the flawed bias that, that people have. So there, Shramana, are a few of them. There are a lot more than that. Um, you know, we tend to, in our system, deal with 16 of them that affect different people and, and, and get people to understand how those biases are negatively influencing their portfolio and then reframe the communication starting okay. from that place so that a person will now start to help solve the problem for themselves. Got it. So that gives us a flavor of the nature of your, um, you know, heuristics and so forth. When did you start the company and why did you zero in on this particular idea to build your business on? So I started the company in a more official sense in April 2001. And it was very much at that point uh, from scratch. And, you know, when I, when, when I say from scratch, it was literally a, a, a clean sheet of paper. Why did I start it? Because about 18 months before that, uh, a friend of mine asked me, Hugh, what are you truly passionate about? And I already had a business, you know, I had been a, a CPA, so I sort of called myself now a reformed accountant because I deal with human behaviour. I, but I had, been, I had been a CPA and then I had started a financial services family office business in Australia. So I was already dealing with a lot of uh, people with reasonable amounts of wealth, that varying degrees from a million to a billion uh, was what I was dealing with. But one day a friend of mine said, you know, Hugh, I don't know that you're really happy in what you're doing and what would fulfill you, what would be your passion? And I just jumped out of my mouth. I want to help people all over the world become more financially self-empowered. That made me jump it made me go onto an inner journey to look at what did that really mean and being a business person, how would I commercialize that? That's just too powerful to run away. Mm -hmm. And what I realized is, you know, if I'm going to help people be financially self-empowered, it's actually teaching them about themselves, how to make better mm -hmm. decisions. And, you know, I looked at my day journal. There was a whole lot of information in there that I had been noting down about client behavior um, um, and uh, entrepreneur behavior and whatnot for for quite a long time, and I realized then that, uh, you know, what I was seeing with people was they would say one thing to me in a meeting and they'd behave a different way, unfulfilled talents that, you know, most people were thinking, well, I'm going to make most of my money in life out of investments, but actually they make it from using their talents. So what I realized is that I had to pull together a program that I could take worldwide and you know, that, that was what was going to fulfill me. It was very hard to, in a way, move away from the hard, harder side or the hard edge side of dealing with money and transactional side to the soft side. But mm -hmm. I realized that could be made up if I built 
systems to deal with this and I could go and educate lots of people around the world about who they are and how they deal with money. So that's, that's how it, that, that's the genesis shamana of the idea. So it's been a very, uh, if you want to call it purpose-based business. And then I've tried to be robust about it in terms of putting together processes, systems, and, and obviously a technology platform. Talk about how you got the business off the ground at the very beginning. After you crystallized the idea on what you were going to build, how did you get it off the ground? So I got it off the ground and, and, and my business was completely self-funded. So I pulled out the huge checkbook. I never wanted to have an outside investor. I've been an outside investor in other people's businesses and I, and I know how I probably interfered in their journey a little bit, but I wanted no interference with this. And I felt like if this is, if this is really good, I should be doing it for myself, you know, financially to start with. And so what happened was, I, you know, a key point here is I met two very key people in my life who are still on my team um, 16 years later a lady by the name of Carol Pocklington and a gentleman who she is still in Australia and a gentleman in America by the name of Lee Ellis who coached and educated me that my theories about human behavior were correct and they helped me validate a system. And once we got the mm -hmm. algorithms right, then I, then I started investing in the technology, not only to discover the behavior, but also how to apply it so that it would be meaningful in building the financial plan. And once we got to that level, I then started using it with the clients that I had in Australia. And then I just got up at four o'clock in the morning. Uh, you know, this is sort of like a year into having used the system a lot with clients. So we knew it worked, it was validated scientifically. Uh, and we continued to do that. But I just got up at four o'clock in the morning and relentlessly called people in the United States and said, I've got this system, this idea, it's gonna transform how you do financial planning. Uh, you can't do a financial plan if you don't know who the client is and rah, 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 I went on with it and I just you did that every morning. You were calling financial advisors at banks? At banks, uh, independent financial advisors, I just uh, yeah. would go and research who was an influencer in the industry and I would call them up and badger them uh, until they uh, returned my phone call. I somehow uh, worked out how to get um, presentation slots at, at some uh, major conferences like the Financial Planning mm -hmm. Association, NAPFA, other industry groups uh, that, would, that would have me come along and speak about this idea called financial DNA because the name is quite catchy. People don't forget it. And that's sort of how it went. And, you know, one person then said, you know, Hugh, I want you to come and talk to my team about this. And, and they might want to use it. A guy called Jim Barnash in Chicago, and I just got on that aeroplane from Sydney, and I had no other meetings in America and went and saw it. And, you know, from there it went from scratch. But he was an industry influencer. Uh, we connected well, and, you know, I just started doing that. And then it really came down to where do I live? And that's when I decided to live in the United States because I, I just couldn't get up at four o'clock, although I do get up early every day here, getting up at four in the morning, going in the cold to the, to the office, making phone calls. You know, you have to do it, but it's a hard life. And I thought I'd be better to be in the t same time zone and around these people day in, day out. So your customer base are financial advisors, big <laughs> and small, uh, yep. and, and you sell them what? You sell them in a software as a service mode? What is the business model? What is the delivery mode model of your technology? Yeah, and, 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 and today, as opposed to when we started, you know, when we started, it was like a per person model, pay us a fee, buy it online, and it was like a per client click uh, online. Um, 
Today, it's a software as a service model, SaaS model. We sell an annual subscription to each advisor or to their firm, and they pay us an annual fee or they can pay it monthly, and they can use it as much as they like. Uh, we have various packages and, um, uh, you know, that they can buy because we've got a number of tools in the system, so it's really a matter of how much do they depth do they want to have, uh, how much uh, training do they want to have and support. And, uh, you know, we've sort of set that up with quite a lot of behavioural science in terms of knowing which ones they're more likely to buy depending on how they run their business and what they're trying to achieve with their clients. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you, you have bootstrapped to $10 million plus from Australia. Of course, you have kind of lived in the U.S. to interface with your U.S. clients, but you're your home base is still Australia in terms of the organization, yes? No, the home base of the organization actually now is the United States. Um, but you, so when I'm, you started I'm, off, it was still in Australia, isn't it? Yeah, I, so I moved it across from Australia to the United States uh, some years ago, uh, around uh, 2009 or 10, I, I, I did okay. that. Um, right. But, uh, so but we, I was living in the US then. Can we walk through your journey a little bit? Um, how long did it take you to get to a million dollars in revenue, annual revenue? You started in 2001. We were, yeah, 2001, um, you know, was, was zero. I was really using it with clients already, so like yeah. we weren't really making any money out of it for the first couple of years because I was just road testing it with, with clients. It wasn't until mm -hmm. 2004 when I started going to the United States that what I call genuine money came in for the business um, itself because we'd had a long research period um, and, you know, we had some system shifts along the way. So, you know, the first million came in in, 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 in 2007 and then we've just grown it up uh, ever since. And it's on, a, it's on a lot faster track now because we're getting more enterprise clients in the last two or three years. So we, we yeah. sort of muddled around at two and three million for quite a while. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, and a lot of it was just getting the systems right, making it easier for people to use. And also, Shramana developing the scalability. You know, we've just signed up a, a firm yeah. that's got three and a half thousand advisors. And, you know, that's just about to start. In fact, we signed that contract on Monday. and. You know, that will have a multiplication impact in its, own, in its own right. And there are others of those that are coming this year. So, um, you know, the growth path is probably more to the hockey stick level now. It did take a long time to happen. Okay. And I think that's, that's in part because, you know, we are still in a way ahead of the game or the market in the, in the type of product we have. Firms are really only just getting to the human behavioural aspects now. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas when I started, uh, you know, it was even very hard to explain what we did because I got a lot of glazed eyes. But I always knew this was right, and it was a matter of being very patient, determined, and uh, you know, and, and in a way, waiting for the market. So um, let me get a little bit of the journey. So two to three million while you were still doing this from Australia, but selling to U.S. clients, uh, you know, from Australia and by traveling. And then around 2009, when you moved the center of gravity of the business to the United States, uh, what kind of revenue level were you at? 
we were still we were still in that in that level there. And you know, I had already been you know, I was spending a lot of my time in the United States really from two thousand and four onwards. I'd bought a home here. But <laughs> that's when the you know, the legal transition of the business started to take place there in, in two thousand and ten. Um, you know, what in terms of sort of more illegal. What have been the key strategic moves that have been instrumental in making making your business go from that two to three million? It sounds like a bit of a plateau phase to then, you know, shift gears to ten million plus, and then now you're shifting gears again to a a faster curve. Uh, what, what do you see? What were your key strategic moves that were the inflection points of the business? The 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 key strategic moves were were moving the business away from being a lot more of a what I call a coaching model, where it was requiring yeah. heavier training and facilitation, to moving it much more as an online, if you want to call it digital type model, where uh, it was self a lot more self-contained within the technology. So we were delivering a lot, you know, a lot of the a lot of the insights that we have. Uh, we're getting delivered far more online in a much more user-friendly format. So, you know, today when an advisor signs up for our program, they basically get it straight away and they can work with it straight away. Um, they may have 30 minutes of support, whereas at the start they were requiring to come to along to a couple of two-day training programs uh, mm -hmm. to learn how to do it. Now, we, we still run the training programs, but they're at a much higher level, deeper level. We've got one going on in our office today. Uh, but we've been able to get a lot more people to the table more quickly. We've done a lot more train-the-trainer inside some of the larger organisations. But I would say it's the heavy investment in technology that's been important in, in, in building a scalable system. Like we've got a integration with Salesforce.com, so that gets mm -hmm. us a lot of va a visibility. A client or an advisor can just open up their Salesforce account and bam, they can see the insights that are completed by their client and it's all integrated in one spot ready for them to, to work with their clients. So it's really building, you know, at the end of the day, be building strategic relationships like that help us grow. That also is what leads us to the enterprise because the enterprise firms, the larger firms, a lot of them are using groups like Salesforce and there are other ones like InvestNet, which may not mean much to, to too many people outside the US in the industry, but, you know, there are bigger technology platforms that once you start integrating to them, your name in a way travels with them. We still have to sell our product, but mm -hmm. everybody wants everything accessible in, in nanoseconds, all in one place, single sign-on password. And to do that though, you have to actually have to have a very, at a deep level, you have to have a very robust technology system. So I've had to invest all the way along very heavily in the technology to enable us to get to that, to that scalable place. Mm -hmm. So that was and one of the key things that you needed to be able to operate at a higher clip. That's right. And and now, you know, if you say if you take it where where, where to next with this is again it's the continual digitalization of uh financial planning, for example. But there are a whole you know, the robo advisor is growing. I don't know whether a pure robotic model completely works, but having more robotic platform inside a human-based uh, service platform definitely works, and there's a lot more scope for us uh, in that. 
but we've also mm -hmm. found um, other areas where we're able to do integrations and add a lot of value. For example, we're working, started to work with a video company where we're customizing the videos to, to personality style so that the client feedbacks can be done customized to style using video technology. So there are a lot of, you know, when you, when you think outside the box, there are a lot of ways to, uh, you know, to, to build those touch points to either sustain your revenue, add value, or frankly, just to get new clients from that visibility. So you are, at this point, you're over 10 million in revenue and you're still fully bootstrapped? Still fully bootstrapped. I haven't taken on an outside investor at any level. Uh, whether I do or not, I think, uh, you know, that could come down, that could come later uh, when, when we're a much more, uh, you know, a, a larger business. But I would only ever want to have one. And I, and I think if they were to come on board, they would have to be a gateway to a whole lot of clients. I don't want just someone's money for the sake of having it. Uh, I, I would, I would, they would have to be a gateway to clients and, you know, and I think in a, in a way that's got to lead to, a, you know, a much more scaled up result for them as well. Um, you know, we are doing some deals with large organisations and it's very possible one of them would want to buy us or we would do, cut some deal with them because they can get us in front of, frankly, hundreds of financial services firms and millions of clients. And that's probably where it's going to happen through some kind of strategic play. Yeah, okay, very good. You know, uh, for the audience, I want to underscore something in Hugh's journey that is something that you should take note of. Often, when you start building a product and a business in an area where you may be quite a bit ahead of the market, the market's thinking and your thinking are not timeline-wise synced up. That is a phase where you're much better off bootstrapping for a while until you and the market sync up. And, and if you don't bootstrap and if you try to bring financing into that phase where you and the market are not synced up, you're going to grow at a very, very slow pace. And at some level, from a venture capitalist viewpoint, Hugh's journey is a from 2001 to 2009 and in two to three million dollars revenue view, you know, level is a slow journey and venture capitalists don't have appetite for that. <laughs> However, if you're bootstrapping, it's okay. It gives you runway to experiment and to tinker, to experiment with the market, to understand the market, get the market feedback and work that into your technology and your product and your strategy and then kind of position yourself for for higher inflection point growth. And that is perfectly okay. This is the, the trajectory of this business, as you can see, is a longer horizon, a longer timeline. But, and, and the first, you know, several years of this journey are at a slower clip, and then it accelerates, and then possibly it could accelerate even further. But my point is, if you do not manage whom you bring into your journey at what point, there's a very strong likelihood that you're going to go out of business. And Hugh told you right up front that he chose not to take outside investment. And if he had made a different choice, if he had made the choice to take venture capital early on in the journey, this business would have been dead by now. 
because the investors would pull the plug. So this is a lesson that you need to internalize very seriously. There is a tremendously unhealthy behavior in our industry where every entrepreneur immediately after deciding to become an entrepreneur chases investors right away. And that could not be a worse way of looking at entrepreneurship. So this is why I wanted to highlight Hugh's journey for you, hear it from him, how he has navigated, what have been the nuances of the business, and how his extremely wise decision-making has allowed him to get to this point where we, he does have a robust business, does have a you know very healthy, profitable business, and, and significant-sized business. So Hugh, would you like to add to what I said? Well, I, I thank you for saying that, Stramana. And you know, I was interviewed the other day by someone who said, you know, you're a very steady player, and I'm and I'm not your, uh, you know, your flashy operator. And but I think that you know, to to add to your points there, that the way I've looked at this as well is that you've always got to be in business and viable to take take advantage of opportunities when they come. One second, uh, Maureen, somebody is. Okay, so, so you always have to be in business and viable to take advantage of opportunities as they come. And there's no such thing as an overnight success, although people will look at you as that because they start hearing about the story. But I think in terms of the venture capitalist as well, that, you know, and I look at it in my own case study, I may end up having a venture capitalist or an outside financier for one specific product that we spin off out of the business using the, the platforms and the insights and we rebrand it in some way. So there are always a lot of ways to skin the cat to deal with the fast growth element when, 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 when that opportunity uh, comes along. But if you're not in business, you can't take advantage of the opportunity. And I think that and, and you know, you there's also said, a lot of patience. What you just said is the vital point. You have to survive to succeed. If you die, yep. you don't get a chance to play. And that is not the way to play this game. That's right. That's right. Um, the only other thing I'd like to say on the call, if, if we're near the end of it, um, you know, to offer, and I know, Sramana, you're dealing with a lot of entrepreneurs. We're doing a big entrepreneurial study at the moment of, of the behavior of entrepreneurs and how you, you know, what, what are the, uh, what's the wiring of a successful entrepreneur that builds a sustainable business that, that, that does go over a million dollars. And we've got a link, in fact, we have another business unit called Business DNA. Um, and, you know, if, if anyone wants to go on to businessdna.com and complete a, a business DNA assessment, we, we can provide you with insights as to, you know, what your strengths and struggles for an entrepreneur are going to be because, you know, making wise decisions is important, um, you know, being passionate about your product, but you've also, I think the, the wiring uh, you know, how you're wired up as a human being is important and knowing how to manage yourself emotionally on the journey is equally as important. Yeah. All right. Very good. Hugh, thank you for coming and, and uh, I know you have to run. We're going to switch to the rest of the presentation, but it's, it's great to be able to showcase your, your story. Thank you, Samara. I, I really appreciate it and uh, thanks for bringing your message to the world.